I'm here again with Paul Levy. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, yeah. Hello, I'm good. Yeah, up at Warwick Business School at the moment, where it's getting a bit foggy. That sounds nice. Well, not the fog, but Warwick Business School sounds nice. The fog sounds rubbish. Well, I don't think it's foggy outside. Oh, it's just foggy inside? I think so. There's lots of conversation going on, which is why I'm here to talk to you, I think, about about a particular approach to facilitation. I think there's a lot of fog in business schools. I think that does happen. Certainly in my experience of um, doing an MBA, it, uh, it it did certainly seem to increase the amount of fog around. But what, what I mean, you you did tell me what you were going to talk about, and to be honest, I had no idea what you were what you were saying because you, you used this word involution, yeah, which I don't understand. And rather than me asking you before recording, we decided that I would just ask you now, and you could just explain it, and then we would explore what on earth it is that's, <laughs> that you're talking about. Well, I developed a problem-solving technique years ago, which has always gone down very well in rooms, and, and the output has always been really interesting. Um, and it was a version of brainstorming, but I gave the name involutionary brainstorming. And uh, just to kind of briefly give you the roots of this, um, this is a memory going back years. I don't know if you remember the old open university education programs here in the UK, but they tended to have you know, an academic standing in front of a camera explaining a load of mathematical formula, and they were on uh, ungodly hours on TV. But I do remember one particularly, which was it was just comparing two cultures, really, West and in this particular case, it was an African uh, country, and it was just showing a particular tribe and how they made a spear. And for me, what it did was it showed a very simplistic but useful version of the difference between in, involution and evolution. So evolution, which is, you know, sometimes misquoted as survival of the fittest, but certainly, you know, is drawn on the theory of evolution. What they essentially showed was um, in, in a Western country, imagine the UK, imagine sort of hundreds of years ago when they were making a spear. It showed you the traditional way of making a spear and it showed you someone with a knife basically taking a piece of wood and starting to to carve off shaves of wood until they got a sharp point. And then it showed you the academic picking up the spear, aiming at a tree and missing, and they all kind of laughed. But it was showing you this is how you make a spear. What you do is you have to get rid of wood until you go to a sharp point. And that kind of represented um, the notion of, you know, in order to get to a sharp point, you have to lose stuff along the way that's not needed. So the thing evolves into a different shape. Cut across to a different way of doing it, which was this tribe. And what they were doing was they were doing exactly the same process, sharpening the spear. And what I noticed then, it was interesting, is that when you try and sharpen a spear, the little shavings of wood, they don't just fall off. They curve round. They're almost trying to get back into uh, the wood. They don't quite want to leave. The, the wood shaves and goes around. And it's that was what I think was called involutionary. Um, but anyway, all these shavings of wood dropped. Then we had this spear. But before they even threw the spear, they gathered up every lost bit of wood, put it on a little ceremonial fire and lit it and sang a song to thank the wood that was lost for making the spear possible. And then in this program, they threw the spear and, of course, it hit the tree perfect like a bullseye. And just the thoughts from that was how important in some cultures and this is part of the environmental movement, too, that we always use and recycle. And the word recycle is also quite involutionary. Involution kind of means involve, that what is lost is never really lost. That was kind of the idea. And that developed into involutionary brainstorming. Now, you probably know what brainstorming is and the, the rules of it and how people sit in a circle and the rules are about freewheeling ideas. And you get... Can I interrupt a second? Sorry. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm that clear what you're saying although I do feel more able to make a spear. Yeah. But I, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's good. 
Um, well, I don't well, quite get the difference apart from some ceremonial act of burning the shavings, which I have to admit I'm not convinced is what made it hit the tree. Okay, yeah, well, it was a belief system. That was what interested me. The belief system was is that the spear thro um, throws truer and more accurate, not just because of the wood that's been evolved that's left behind, but every bit that's lost has to be acknowledged as part of that process. That's kind of the idea. Um, so and actually, that's what we mean by involution, acknowledging the loss. Yes, uh, but also incorporating that back into your decision-making process. Uh, another example is if you have a purely evolutionary idea, you end up with chemical factories that dump waste into the river and say, well, that's not our problem anymore. But what actually happens is the river is then polluted. The river pollutes the land. The land, therefore, um, is now polluted, so we can't grow things as easily. So the cost of agriculture goes up. And because the cost has gone up, people charge more for their labour, um, and that is comes straight back to the chemical factory because people want more wages because the price of food's gone up. So there are consequences to what you do. You can't just say, right, well, we've made this thing and this is this is it. Forget everything else. It always loops back in. You know, in traditions, sometimes it's been called karma. It's been called what goes around comes around. But it's the idea that what is lost is never really lost and has an impact. That was kind of the idea. So it's uh, more, it's more help. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to get there because simply what I noticed in brainstorming, which is the attempt often to get good ideas, is that you would go around a group. This is facilitators and they always learn this technique and you would collect all the ideas and you would write them up. And we'd end up with if we have 50 people, we could have 60 or 70 ideas for a better product or how we can use our space more effectively or how to improve motivation or specifically around a product design. We'd end up with lots of um, ideas. What often then happens is that you somehow organize those ideas in an evolutionary process of getting to the fittest ideas that survive usually through voting of some sort. So we vote using other techniques. You can use things like weighted selection or paired comparison. And you end up with the top five ideas. You might pick one or two of them for an experiment or you might go for the top one through voting. And voting is a very evolutionary process in terms of which ideas you know, win the, the, the fight uh, of voting. You end up with the top idea. And the thing I noticed over years um, was that quite often the top idea is the one everybody knew about in the first place. It was actually very rarely radical. Um, quite often there was quite a bit of collusion around it anyway. So people said lots of ideas, but they ended up voting for the safe ones anyway. And that always bothered me. And the idea of involution about what is lost could be more essential, even if you just take that as a metaphor, was that I tried a different approach once. And I think some people who are facilitators may have stumbled upon this, too which is we ended up with the top 10 ideas, we voted for them, and we discovered that ideas at the bottom of our brainstorm list had got no votes at all. And what we did was we then turned the list upside down. So the ideas that were going to be lost, a bit like when we sharpen our spear and bits of wood fall off, is we carefully pick up these lost ideas, these bits of wood that have fallen away, and we give them a high priority as if they're the most important. So all the ones that got zero are at the top of the list, and then we invited everybody that come up, came up with those ideas that were about to be rejected in this competitive process to say why they came up with them. And we explored them. And then we re-voted. And what nearly always happened in all the cases was at least one or two of those ideas when we re-voted appeared much higher up the list, even at the top. And would you be surprised if they weren't the most radical, innovative, different and actually needed ideas for the organisation? So those things that are about to be lost played back into the system because we allowed them to and actually influence where the organization went and were the most interesting ideas and sometimes the ones that were adopted. So we were about to do the evolutionary process of just going for the usual ones. 
which our mediocre process of voting came up with. But actually with involution, that's a buzzword, I know, but it's just the opposite of evolution. The involution, the things that we involved back into the room, gave a speech time to, got explored, ended up being the, the innovations that actually impacted on the bottom line too and were the product ideas, the new process ideas that the organisation really needed. I think that's a brilliant process. I really do. Because I always think that when it, any, any kind of decision-making process whether it's brainstorm related or just well, any other kind of thing of that nature, it does tend to start being, uh, it, it tends to veer away. I think there is, again, a bias, some kind of business bias, which seems to be let's veer away from having deep and analytical discussions and really exploring everything. And let's just, it's all about speed and voting. And it's, it's, it's a very superficial approach. And as you say, you tend to then see what you saw anyway. And in those yeah. in those less obvious ideas, there's ones that sound a bit crazy, or you know, you, or you just can't make head and tail of, or you can't see them as practical. You, it's much easier not to vote for those. And when I was talking about consequences, that you know, it just what I was trying to show with just the metaphor that if you do shave wood, it's really interesting. It doesn't just go off in a straight line; it kind of curls back. Is that things that you reject in the world seem to have a circular quality? They always go out into your community, and I think they come back to haunt you. So in the brainstorming, sometimes those ideas that were about to be voted out of existence are people that have sometimes rarely spoken, have got radical thoughts and ideas they've been holding for a while. They're about to watch their crazy ideas get thrown out, even though they are the interesting radical ones. And quite often they then don't show up to the next meeting. They don't feel very heard. They feel, here we are at another meeting and no one's hearing my ideas. By giving them a listen, it can not only transform the decision-making process, but people at least feel acknowledged that they were heard. And so they don't become poltergeists and ghosts haunting the process later. Just the very conversation of saying, let's look at the bottom that we're about to reject and let's involve it back. That's what I'm calling involution. And it's interesting that how eloquent sometimes those people are. And sometimes when you explore it, they say, well, I know that's a crazy idea, but I didn't quite mean that. And you get to a principle behind it. And that's the one that people run with. And it can sometimes transform the ideas and enhance the ones that were getting the best vote. So you often find it in the horror film genre and horror books of how when something was rejected, ignored, like a ghost, it doesn't usually lie down and die. It comes back to haunt you. So all the better to involve it anyway. I do think that so much thinking and so much decision-making is so superficial. And the yeah. more you can kind of build into the process a, a system to just to just take time and explore those sorts of things. And as you say, maybe in their raw form, they don't work. Maybe yeah. they're quite rightly down the bottom. But there are yeah. those thoughts, principles, or something behind them yeah. which can add into something else. Yeah. And what, one other idea that just dovetails nicely with that, that I picked up from several, I'd say, facilitators I very much recommend, and they've done this instinctively. And I think this is another involutionary technique, is if you're in a meeting and you're making a very, very important decision, one thing that facilitator can always ask is who should have been sitting in those empty seats? You know, you focus not on who's there and screw everyone else because they didn't show up, which is a very sort of evolutionary perspective in that kind of social sense. Well, if you didn't come, well, that's, you know, the right people are in the room. But if you say who's not here and you discover that so-and-so's not here because they're angry or so-and-so's not here because they're ill and so-and-so's not here because they wasn't invited. But these are key stakeholders in the process. You can do one of two things. One is you could use digital technology to Skype them in, to get them in on the conference call, to be involved in this decision and suddenly find they put lots of insights in. You can say, so-and-so's not here, but they're very, really key. You can get, hold the meeting for a bit and get them in. Or if they're ill, you can even do some advocacy that there might be someone in the room who could speak on their behalf as if they were here 
the involution again is interested in who's not represented in what ideas are not being spoken and by speaking them into the room you actually enhance the conversation what so what i'm uh, it's kind of false polarity but putting up the evolutionary process is we just go with who showed up. We go with the survivors. They're here. So that's all we go with. That's a narrow view. The involutionary view, which is a bit more complicated and enhances, is interested in the empty spaces in between everybody and what ought to be filling them. Things like that are things that they wouldn't think of themselves necessarily. And yeah. it's quite nice for us as facilitators to be able to shine those lights into the empty spaces, for example, and ask those challenging questions maybe in ways yeah. that people wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. So it's a really nice way that we can add value. So I'm bought yeah. into this. I was going to be all stroppy and argumentative, but actually I'm totally bought into this one, Paul. Yeah, well, and the third one, which is very much more recent and uses the digital world, um, and it's part of, a, I think it's a, a kind of theory that, I, I can't remember if it's Donald Schoen or Edgar Schein that brought this, but he wrote a book called Humble Inquiry, is that when organisations are really arrogant, what they do with their ideas is they simply look to confirm them. Um, and so what they do is they, they get a few focus groups in or they send a questionnaire in and they sort of pay lip service to it. More, more um, I guess, committed organisations, honest, authentic organisations generally use research to find out what people think of their ideas, their customer base, for example, their suppliers, their stakeholders, colleagues, and they fold those ideas in. But one of the new techniques now, which a lot of organisations are doing, is they really open that conversation wide because there's millions of people not in the room where we're about to change a product or make a decision. So, of course, crowdsourcing is what they do. They crowdsource the ideas. They go onto things like Twitter. They use crowdsourcing platforms to get voting going in, to get thoughts going in. And they literally can get millions of ideas and thoughts about their decision that can also be a, a, a really important perspective on what they do. So one view is, no, look, we're the decision makers here. We're the fittest. We're the strongest. We're going to push this thing out. We're going to maybe do some research. But another view now is that what defines our products um, is not arrogance, but it's it's humble inquiry. And you'll notice that's going on at the moment with Apple and the, the launch of the new Google Pixel phone, which is, are they going to get rid of the headphone jack that everybody likes? Are these organizations now so evolutionary and arrogant that they're ignoring their customers and pushing their customers in their direction? And is that going to be a problem? Because what they really need to do is involve them and be involutionary. The jury's out on that one at the moment, John. Yeah, absolutely. And Apple's a great example of that, of course, because they've always taken that slightly arrogant position of we you don't know what you'd want we know what you want we're going yeah. to invent markets which of course yeah. they've done successfully um, extremely successfully for many many years but there's a time and a place for that isn't there there's a time and a place yeah. where it would actually be better to be humble and um, especially considering apple's current position yeah and, and there's a huge thing going on in politics at the moment i mean it's playing out in the uk which is you know, we've often um, celebrated in the NHS who lived, you know, and there's a big lot of stuff about cures and medicine and the, the great um, success rate in some areas and the research that we're doing. But, you know, pushing at that door is also who died and why did they die? And how could they be prevented now they don't have a voice? Maybe their families do. But an involutionary approach to the NHS, of course, it forges in the direction of health and happiness and cures, but it also has to turn around and look at you know, who was lost on the way, because they are the ghosts that are constantly haunting the NHS, pointing to lack of care, lack of resources, needing smarter systems, needing to be more sensitive. And the involutionary approach identifies the beds that are empty for the wrong reason. Yeah, it's a nice example, quite a chilling example. But yeah, it, it, it clarifies the difference between evolution and involution in this sense. Yeah. It's not yeah. 
it's not analysis of the winners. It's analysis of those that didn't make it. Why? What was there? Yeah. Um, what did we miss? Yeah. And so for trainers, it's all about who's not in the room, um, what ideas have not been shared and what our blind spots are and what we've not covered and what so-and-so might say if they were in the room. Um, and what that does is it makes it more complicated sometimes, but it completes the picture. So for me, involution, you know, say it sounds like a big, big buzzword, is the antidote to being too evolutionary, where you reject a lot in order to sharpen your spear. Involution says you can still sharpen your spear, but everything that's been lost along the way still plays into the process. Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly less clear on its application in a more standard training course. I can see the facilitation, the brainstorming example is really clear. Your example in the meeting is clear. The crowdsourcing example is clear. All of that makes absolute sense to me. The bit in the meeting then when you were just saying, or sorry, the training event then when you were just saying it's about what didn't come, what isn't included, is again looking at shining lights into the gaps. Yeah. To me, that's slightly less clear how I would use it there. Well, I think it's an orientation for a trainer. And certainly if they have got very little freedom and they're not that interested in who's in the room because they're just delivering standardly from the front and aren't very responsive, then you can't really use it. But I think most good practice training, even in the standard training room, is interested in who didn't show up and why and what can be done about that. And they're interested in, well, we covered that, but what didn't we cover? You know, so you're a crazy trainer if you don't look at what might have even changed this week in the environment around you. It could be legislation. It could be good practice. It could be reading lists need to be updated. But there's an orientation that you can have. I mean, that's good practice anyway, that puts you more in the direction of who's in the empty seats, what hasn't been said, what are we not asking. When I was in the room and I noticed three people at the back switching off, what can I learn from that? What wasn't relevant to them that was relevant to those other people? Uh, and that's part of the debrief. That's part of the measure. So even with standard training, Involution helps you. It puts you classically in your zone of discomfort, which is, you know, the shadowy areas, the, the empty spaces that were you to look in there, you might find things that you need to incorporate in that would only enhance even the most standard training. Some people fear that. And for some people, it's just normal practice. So you're looking at that from the point of view of the trainer or the facilitator. Yeah. And they're looking at the gaps, what's not being said, who's not here, why is that person zoned out or whatever. Yes. I'm really, you... I'm, yeah, I'm really reading the feedback sheets and actually using those feedback sheets as vital feedback for enhancing rather than tick boxes. You know, you actually find that feedback, which can happen during the day too, influences your style and content of delivery. Yeah, and we talked a lot about that in, again, going back to the Collusion of Mediocrity podcast, yeah. that the very first one we recorded together, we talked a lot about the role of feedback there, and we, we focused mainly on its negative impact on that sort of happy sheet thing, but there is obviously another side to that argument, there is a positive side to it, although, personally, I'm not a big fan of things like happy sheets, I hate the bloody things. Yeah, yeah. But, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, you, you, you were saying then about the involution is... A kind of a mindset or an attitude from the facilitator yeah is it is there an application in terms of how you might facilitate the day in terms of looking at the content or looking at the way look looking at it in another way in the same way as when you're facilitating the meeting you're challenging people to say who's not here and why yeah. not when you're doing yeah. the brainstorming you're challenging people to say let's look at these ideas we didn't vote for let's really you know rummage around there because you yes. know that will lead to a more quality outcome yeah. Can so, we apply the same thing to the contents of the day in a in a training session? You know, I go um, I'm regularly on a call. It's an international 
online call with um, a community around open space technology, a form of conferencing. And that is a brilliant place because it's a peer group for me to regularly have my blind spots, you know, my my uh, gaps pointed out by a peer group of people who have a, a lot of different experience. So when creating the content for something, particularly if you're repeating it over time, your peer group is a really brilliant place to say, well, here's the list of references. Here's the reading list. This is a model I'm trying out. And someone to say, I've just found this really interesting update to that. Have a look at it. And you go online and you find that someone's enhanced it. Or there's some great case studies in, in the sector that you're actually teaching into. And you had some case studies that weren't quite in that sector and aren't quite relevant. So absolutely in the creation of content, an involutionary person is always looking for what's missing. And that can be fun. That can be playful as well. Um, and now it's a bit more humble to actually look into a room of 20 people who have come to learn from you, even in training. But recognize, I always count this up, 20 people that have been working for 30 years each is 600 years of working life, which is far more than you've got. They may well have recommendations, too. They may well even have some input that can help and enhance your teaching, a book that they've read, uh, a methodology that they know of that's online. And you can go live on the Internet and say, oh, let's take a look at that now. Or you might notice it over lunch and then say so and so this morning said something really useful. And I just had a look at it. Let's take a look at this model or this approach or this technique. So I think really humble trainers who are, who are very flexible, their content can change in real time on a course, on a more standard course where perhaps you don't have permission to change it. You can still enhance your material from time to time by looking for the gaps, looking for what is falling short, looking for what's going out of date, looking for the human beings who have got something to say on this that you haven't heard, um, and constantly sharpen up your content, not by what you're rejecting, but by what you're including. Right, so it's around kind of using the room and saying what's what's missing here for you, what's not there, what would you include, what would you like? Yeah. A very improvisational approach again, which again may, may be reflecting your love of things like improvisation. Yeah, but if you don't do improvisation, I say you could deliver that course, but in between sessions, you could have noted down some of the interesting phrases, keywords that people have said. Um, and, you know, you can go into a mode of inquiry where you're looking to enhance and update your material, um, partly by what's come to you from the room, partly by what's come to you from your peer group. And I think it's good to have an open, non-collusive peer group that say, oh, well, you know, you're missing this, you know, you're, you're not covering that. Um, and that, sounds a bit critical of you and you might have to go yeah that's right i'm a bit out of date on this um you know i'm a bit emotionally attached to that and actually it's not what they need um and then of course what you can do and the internet does provide this is you can get online um you know and search and seek out what's missing yeah i think that's a very healthy approach to take isn't it it's that humility again that i know we've talked about before but it's such an important position to take yeah and consciously take because there's there is that natural authority that you get being the trainer who has all yeah. the knowledge and it, having that humility i think is is just such an important thing that we have to keep in the front of our minds it's it's not yeah. necessarily always there otherwise we're so desperate not to lose credibility or something and and the danger of being in this collusive place we're all kind of being nice to each other all the time and in the comfort zone um, and so we tend to recreate the same stuff and then pretend and name it as radical is that even things like brainstorming unknown to a lot of people end up with the ideas at the top that are going to be voted in are the very ideas we don't need. We're just recreating history. We're just in the comfort zone. The ideas at the bottom, some may need to be rejected, but if we explore them, 
they're going to be the ones that actually could be the most exciting, radical, dangerous stuff that we really need. And that's true in the training room, too. What are we missing also involves seeking out what's most dangerous, what's most radical or revolutionary that could actually change the whole system in ways that system truly needs. I think that insight into brainstorming actually, again, is really valuable because I wonder if you just called that out and just said, you know, are these the ideas that we thought of anyway? Let's, you know, and just call it out and just say, let's really explore the other things. I reckon a lot of people would recognize that and kind of go, yeah, they yeah. pretty much are. Yeah, it's it's the fairly safe ground. Yeah. Or it, there might be the odd kind of glitzy, glamorous thing in there as well, yeah. the shiny thing. Yeah. Um, but I think just that little technique is a really powerful way of making brainstorming a lot more valuable. Yeah, and just give you one real example. This was a company that was in the, I think it's advertising industry mainly, but also marketing. Um, and they said so they gen were just generating how they can improve their channels to market to their customers. They did all the brainstorming as usual. And up the top was we need to be online more. We need to have better business cards. We need to have better databases. It was all there. They're kind of doing a lot of that stuff anyway. Uh, we need to have a more radical approach to focus groups. Down at the bottom, the last two items was one was um, dining out more. And the second one was um, using a phone box. And everyone was about to reject that. But I said, no, let's put these at the top. And the person who said using a phone box was way ahead of their time. And basically what they said was what we really need to do is to create one to one situations. And that involves us just going to um, hang around places where other people are at as if it's just me in a phone box. And people could walk over to me or call me and know that I'm sitting there and they can phone me. And then I'll look up um, and um what will happen is they'll come over and start a conversation. And that led to a process where they started to advertise that John Smith or Mary Jones is going to be in Islington on Friday. And these are the cafes they're hanging around in. They'd love to have a chat with you. All you need to do is text them to this number and look up if you're in the same cafe or raise your hand. And that led to a whole new process for them. And the other one about restaurants and stuff was just the realization that they were having lots of posh dinners. And this person was saying we need to have more cafe based meeting. And it led to lots of the meetings were transferred from all these posh, schmoozing, expensive dinners to a lot of people just wanted to have a half an hour chat at coffee at a station. And they found entire new clients from that coffee community that didn't want to be sitting down for three hours all the time. That was a bit of an old, outdated, you know, even kind of potentially corrupt way of meeting. So the two ideas at the bottom made it to the top, were transformed and became two major channels for market that had measurable benefits. Yeah, it's a great example. I'm kind of slightly transfixed by that first coffee shop example. I think yeah. that's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. And I wouldn't have got it from the word phone box either. No. But it's a really no. interesting illustrative example. Well, also, and the idea that was, I think, was rejected, but it nearly made it, was the idea that they were going to announce that one of their offices was a bought-up phone box somewhere in London. And actually, there was going to be people standing in a phone box for an hour, and you could knock on the door and come and chat to them. But it was just the principle there, was we don't just need large meeting spaces and and, you know, um, big spaces like offices, what we actually need to do is have something a bit like a phone box where someone can find you really easily located somewhere. And it's it's no more than the two feet square that you're standing on. Yeah, I wouldn't have even thought of the, the metaphor of it, even if it wasn't no. meant literally. I think it's the, a, a the, fascinating example. Yeah. And the key thing is imagining the spear again. They were parts of the wood that was just dropping to the ground, not used in the spear because they were only valuing the spear. Yet those were the very bits. Take the example of the tribe that the tribe believed are as critical to the process uh, and where we're heading as the spear itself. Well, thanks for that, Paul, because not only do I think there's some really useful techniques where we could you know, add value in quite an unusual way, I think, to facilitation in lots of examples that you've talked about there. And I probably need to reflect more and think about where else could I apply that and what other parts of, of the work that I do. 
but I also feel that I could make a spear. And I didn't expect that from this conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot. See you next time.